Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, as the threat of climate change looms ever nearer, many are asking, what can I do? For a growing number of Americans, the answer is letting nature take care of itself, something called rewilding. Rewilding can look like many things, but for most, it looks like introducing plants in your yard that are native to your area. Now, not everyone is on board here. Rewilding does bring birds and butterflies and bees, but it also reintroduces predators and small animals. And while they might be beneficial to the local ecosystem, not everyone wants to deal with wolves, coyotes, and beavers running around in their yards and neighborhoods. So what are the pros and cons of urban rewilding? Later in the show, they called it driveway choirs and carber shop the choral groups who sang together apart while in their cars during the height of COVID-19. A local Marlboro couple helped make those in-the-car concerts a phenomenon across the state and nationwide. Now they've captured the story in a new documentary, The Drive to Sing. But first, joining me remotely, Bill Lynn, a research scientist in the George Perkins Marsh Institute at Clark University and a research fellow at Knology. He is also the founder of PanWorks, an independent, nonpartisan think tank dedicated to the well-being of animals. Welcome, Bill. Pleasure to be here. Also with me, C. Ian Stevenson, who is a director of advocacy for Greater Portland Landmarks, a nonprofit historic preservation organization in Portland, Maine. Ian holds a PhD in American and New England studies from Boston University. His research and publications include such topics as historic dams, river rewilding, railroad station architecture, and the creation of national parks. Hi, Ian. Hi, Callie. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to have both of you. And we're going to start simply. What is rewilding, Ian? Thank you. This is a wonderful question. Rewilding is a concept that has gotten traction in the last few decades about turning landscapes back into an imagined past of a nature that existed before human intervention. But ironically, rewilding requires human beings to intervene into landscapes to sort of correct things that they've done before. So the idea is creating spaces, landscapes, um, to look as if they were untouched by people in a sort of uh, Edenic sense, um, to sort of restore ecosystems to a better state. What would you add to that, Bill? Well, I would disagree with it from the very the very premise. And I don't disagree in the sense of disrespect because there's real elements that are true. And there's certainly, it's true that there are folks thinking of rewilding, especially for areas that are wildernesses, defense 
facto wildernesses that are looking to restore landscapes to the functions and species diversity at the time of the pre-Columbian exchange, when Columbus and Europeans first started moving out over the planet and doing the tremendous amount of damage that they've done. But for many people, rewilding is, is more restoring uh, the functions of nature. It's restoring spaces so that other species can thrive. And for me, that's the sort of scientific element of rewilding. For me as an ethicist, rewilding is about restoring and repairing a right relationship with other animals in nature. So it's more of a vision than it is a, tech, uh, a, a technicality. Um, so from your perspective, not that humans are superior to other animals, we're, we're in balance with them, as you would see it. I, I would say that's true, yes. Okay. So how does it work, Ian? Back to you. You know, and if we think back to uh, human engagement with the landscape in North America, let's say, as Bill mentioned, um, after the arrival of Europeans, there was this concept by Europeans that the Native Americans were underutilizing the land, and therefore they had a right to consume that land for more productive uses. So this is what led to the damming of rivers and the felling of forests and the turning of um, grasslands into, into farms. And so as a result of this sort of march of so-called progress over several centuries, then there was a reaction in the late 19th century that uh, too much of this was happening and we were destroying nature. And two sort of ethics emerged as a result of this. One was the concept of preservation. And we associate this with the creation of national parks. So idea is places that um, people want to set aside as being untouched by nature. And a competing vision was the idea of conservation. And there, it was that we would manage the landscape. So for example, the national forests, where you can do selective logging and things. Rewilding is a third approach toward American landscapes. And the idea there is that there are places that have been so touched by human hands that we want to go bring them back into a state of management that um, reinstills the idea of nature and natural processes. So it's not so much about just letting land go and becoming natural again as, as much as actively choosing ways to intervene, to bring those places into a state, as Bill said, about sort of harmony with other animals and plants, um, but that's rooted in the concept of a nature that existed before people were uh, mucking about and damaging those places. Okay, so uh, Bill, let me start with you and ask, what's the difference between rewilding in a wild area somewhere, wild is probably not what I mean, but someplace that's um, not built up as opposed to urban rewilding, which is where folks live in cities? Oh, there's a lot of differences in that sense. Uh, first, I think it's important to remember that rewilding is very um, uh, contextual. It's place, uh, it's place based. So there are certain places where you might want to look at ecological functions and the species diversities and reintroducing uh, so predators or other kinds of extinct or threatened species. Um, having protections for those so they don't become threatened or go extinct, etc. So really focusing on the natural processes um, and nature itself, let me put it like that. In, in urban rewilding, it's a very different sense because there's not a, there's not amongst rewilders, 
there's not a sense that we need to remove urban areas or we need to change urban areas over completely. What we need to do is cultivate more of ethical norms and a culture of nature. So people learn how to respect and um, take joy from and coexist uh, with their wild neighbors and with more wildish habitats. That can be as simple as the remark you made early on about uh, using native plants uh, to um, uh, in, in your gardening. And you're, you're seeing a lot of that in the arid Southwest because the European uh, penchant and then American penchant for lawns um, is really dysfunctional for the arid Southwest. So there's this very, you know, um, uh, there's a, there's this effort to turn those lawns over to native gardening, but it also is about um, giving people access to green space. It's about taking children outside for their science classes, um, urban ecology classes. It's about making sure that people in built up urban areas have equitable access hmm. to more natural areas. It's a very complex process. But the big part is, as you've said, it really is depending on where you are. So, so I, I was just reminded of wine and France. <laughs> you know, the wine will tell you that yeah. it's the terroir. It's like where the wine tastes like yes. the place. So you're <laughs> saying, um, you know, yes. wherever you decide to rewild, it depends on what the place is to begin with. And then you make choices about, you know, how to deal with that. Um, Ian, um, how do you respond to the difference between yeah. uh, those two areas? Well, I'd like to give an example of an urban rewilding project that I'm quite familiar with to expound upon Great. that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I grew up in Yonkers, New York, which is the city just north of the Bronx, uh, home to 200,000 people. And there's a river rewilding project that's underway there for the Sawmill River, um, which mm -hmm. is a feeder into the Hudson River. And it runs through downtown Yonkers in the neighborhood called Getty Square. And for about 100 years, the river was buried in culverts because it had become a polluted stream and people turned their back on the river. And at the turn of the 20th century, there was an impetus to rewild that river and make it uh, a celebratory piece of the city's uh, urban infrastructure. And so the process of daylighting has been ongoing for the last 15 years, and it's turning the river back into a wild landscape. In fact, they're planting native flora there. The hope is that it will bring back native um, fish populations that spawn in the river. And it's this celebrated ecological restoration of a shared space. And the idea is that people can promenade along around it and uh, integrate with nature. But there's a dark side to these kinds of projects, too, because they're not for everybody. The direct result of this um, rewilding project in Yonkers has been um, stark gentrification. This was a lower income neighborhood of the city, and all of the housing projects that are going around this river restoration are high-end condos. It's billing itself as the so-called so sixth borough of New York City with um, infrastructure for getting working professionals into Manhattan downtown. And um, the poorer populations of underrepresented groups are feeling displaced as a result of this restoration. So I want to pick up that uh, a little bit later, but I also want to just go back to the actual rewilding process itself. Uh, would that be, cons despite the downside and the dark side, as you've mentioned, that would be considered a success, right? From a rewilding perspective, yes. absolutely. That's mm -hmm. right, because they've removed concrete. They have restored the river uh, bed itself, uh, plantings. It's better for flood mitigation now. Um, they have um, 
they they built in riprap and other things that are designed to deal with heavy rain flows and tidal surges and this sort of thing. So there is a climate uh, component to this rewilding that's beneficial. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Bill Lynn of Clark University and C. Ian Stevenson of Advocacy for Greater Portland Landmarks. We're discussing the process of rewilding and its real-world implications. So now, um, Ian has introduced the dark side or some of the tensions around rewilding, Bill, um, because to our ear, it sounds pretty good, you know, restoring the land, paying attention to the particular area that you are in, bringing back what's native, balancing the, the ecosystems, sounds good. But there's tensions about it, um, particularly in urban areas. And you've been very clear that there's a difference in how it should happen in uh, urban areas and those that are not urban. Let's talk about some of the tensions around um urban rewilding and, and what, what that's mm -hmm. all about. Mm -hmm. Well, I, this is primarily a question about ethics and social justice in the context of rewilding. And I think Ian's example is is great and really brings that to the fore, fore. This is not an issue about rewilding per se, so much as it is a reflection of problems of diversity and equity and inclusion in our society, specifically the idea that environmental amenities in an urban context should be reserved or developed for those who have a lot of means and uh, sort of material means and political power uh, to ask for that and to push for that to be done. Um, it raises the question of where rewilding and what kind of rewilding should be done in cities. Should they just be re, uh, reserved for specific spaces or should we think about it as being something that um, uh, should be planned and built equitably for all populations in our cities? But there's no way you're going to be able to ensure equitable access uh, to rewilded areas unless you start to address deeper issues, um, uh, income and wealth inequality, um, segregation amongst uh, communities. Those sorts of larger issues also have to be brought to the table. Mm. Um, and in addition to that, um, both of you know that when you start talking about the real rewilding, returning those plants, that means, as you've been clear about, Bill, there are animals there too that should be attracted to the rewilding situation where they would have been without an urban footprint of some sort, or a heavy one at least. So I'm uh, I want to talk about the the tensions that are going on in neighborhoods as some people would like to do that, but other folks are frankly not really interested in maybe mm -hmm. the flowers, but but not the animals. Um, I want to bring your attention to a documentary that was made in 2019 about a 2012 incident. It's called Rewilding America, Lessons Learned from the Cape Cod Bear by uh, Marianne Galvin. And mm -hmm. here's a clip from it. And this, uh, what brought it so much attention is that the, the Cape Cod Bear walked from mainland Massachusetts to the tip of Cape Cod, and it sparked many discussions about how to live with wildlife. 
Well, the Cape Cod bear is on the move again. After apparently swimming across the Cape Cod Canal, the bear has made it all the way to the easternmost tip of Massachusetts. It's been quite the journey for the bear. The bear was first spotted, spotted rather, in Barnstable, then it was on to Orleans, and tonight that bear has made it all the way to Provincetown. So, um, Marianne Galvin called her piece Rewilding America Lessons Learned from uh, the Bear because uh, the bear was sighted everywhere, and um, they explored what happens when you uh, have this coexistence between animals that are in their place kind of, sort of, <laughs> maybe where they would have been, but there are obviously humans there too. And, you know, to discuss really what it means. So if you rewild with any kind of intentionality, you're going to have animals, um, sometimes large ones, sometimes small ones. So I'd like both of you to respond to uh, the tension of bringing back an area, um, but it also has to, from your definitions, has to include these animals. Ian, I'll let you go first. I think this uh, exposes a fundamental flaw in even just the theory of rewilding because people want selective rewilding where there are certain things they like and certain things they don't. Nobody wants to go back to living as if we're in the 19th century, but they want to espouse some of these other ideals. And I think it's important to keep in mind that any rewilding project, no matter how well conceived, will have other consequences that are sometimes negative and not just in the sense of um, animals that are a particular threat, but they're even smaller scale things. So as I mentioned, a lot of my work has to do with rivers and there's an impetus for removing dams to restore some of these rivers to their natural flows. Now, while removing the dam would change the way the water itself flows, other ecosystems have developed as a result of that dam and other people's landscapes have changed. So people that once had waterfront property on a river, let's say they have a dock, that's gone. So recreational um, ways of interacting with the land are, are have disappeared. So it's not to say that human interaction with the land is necessarily bad or negative, and it's not to say that rewilding is necessarily always positive. So I think whenever people are considering certain initiatives, they have to think about it in balance um, and not just the idea that anything natural or that nature produces is necessarily better. Hmm. Uh, Bill? Well, I fundamentally agree that you have to think about it in context. Um, and you have, to, you have to weigh the factors of how rewilding is going to impact the people, the animals in the area, and the natural world in which both the animals and the people are located. Um, but I also think this has to do a lot with our fear of wildness. Um, we've become so domesticated ourselves, we've forgotten how to learn to live around in landscapes with large predators. Uh, I'm a Northern Canadian. There are many, many people in Canada, of course, and the United States who live in rural areas. I'm in one right now up near Holton, Maine, in which they routinely um, come in contact with moose, um, with bears, with koi wolves who are uh, crossed between coyotes and wolves in the Northeast area. Where I'm from in Northern Ontario, we used to come across wolves with frequency and the threats of of that are, are are very very low. I mean, it's not it's not even worth thinking about compared to the other threats we face from human beings in our societies. Much less the threats of oppression and climate change and biodiversity loss that we create as societies. There are whole programs too that help people learn to live with wildlife. 
this set, um, and I'm defending uh, the the space of wild animals amongst us, you do need to make optimized choices at times. Sometimes I've been chased by a grizzly bear at Yellowstone. Oh my God. Oh my God. I've been charged by a moose <laughs> in a wilderness area. I know what it's like to feel fear and be in a dangerous situation. I don't want to pretend that doesn't exist. So sometimes you have to make decisions. Certain bears come into certain neighborhoods, they need to be removed. But those are all situated judgments, uh, practices you undertake when a problem presents itself and is not something that is always characteristic of rewilding. I would say, in fact, that rewilding, by creating spaces for animals to have their natural habitat, creates buffer zones between human beings and those animals themselves, and it reduces those conflicts. If I, if I could respond to that, you know, it comes back to this uh, larger ethos that I was alluding to earlier. It sort of comes out of a Judeo-Christian tradition that the earth is something that human beings are meant to utilize and exploit. And I think that a lot of people, when they hear rewilding, think about wild spaces as being set apart from living spaces. And I think that's the fundamental tension that Bill's alluding to, is that people want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to have animals and plant species thriving, but they want them separate almost in this, um, I don't want to say a zoo-like manner, but kind of like a, a national park model, but just closer to home. And, um, you know, nature, nature doesn't always do what we wanted to, despite the fact that we think we have the, the power to control it. Well, here's a clip again from um, Rewilding America, Lessons from a Cape Cod Bear. And in this clip, it's they're exploring the notion that we, that are humans, don't own this land and animals have every right to be here too no individual has has a right to eliminate animals from a, a landscape because they don't own those animals. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Bill Lynn of Clark University and C. Ian Stevenson of Advocacy for Greater Portland Landmarks. We're discussing the process of rewilding and why some people have a problem with it. So, if you put all that together, um, you know, these are some, some tension points. And I just have to tell both of you, if I see a mouse, I'm on top of this building. So I clearly am not uh, totally into the rewilding mode. If I think I'm going to see something, I would be the freak out person. So, and yet I hear you about, I, I love, for example, uh, making sure that there are native plants that bring bees. I, I can get all with that, but... Mm. You start talking about an animal and um, larger than a mouse, you see I have an issue. <laughs> well, Callie, some people don't even want the bees because they're afraid of getting stung. So mm -hmm. you're you're braver than uh, you're letting yourself uh, out as. <laughs> okay. Now, Bill, I hear that this is a huge debate in your neighborhood. Oh, yes, it is a huge debate in my neighborhood. And, and it's a huge debate across uh, the nation and, the, and across the world where rewilding has taken place. I mean, there's even proposals to bring back uh, through a process called de-extinction, woolly mammoths and rewild portions of Siberia uh, with ma mammals that are extinct now from the uh, former Pleistocene era. Um, what has nobody it, watched it, the third at the third version of <laughs> Jurassic Park? What do you? What do you? Park, what, yes, what, hello. No, I know. It's, <laughs> well, it's it's an interesting discussion about. Uh, de-extinction, um, but that's for another time. In but, my but, neighborhood- But tell me about your neighborhood specifically, like what's yeah. what's happening there? 
Well, in my neighborhood, mm -hmm. what we did in our backyard is we uh, we created a, a New England wildflower meadow. It's very much like a meadow you might come across by hiking through some of the mountains of New England. It's very small. We have a very um, postage size uh, plot as we're you know close to downtown Boston. But that's created a, a huge issue for some neighbors for whom a mowed grass mm. lawn is the only normative way in which to landscape uh, in suburb suburbia or in New England towns. So that's one issue. Another issue on the more on more on the positive side is our small bit of habitat has become a stopover place and a, a, a living place for lots and lots of wild animals. I'm talking red squirrels and gray squirrels, raccoons, possums, um, occasional coyote will come through, etc. This is just a little bit of habitat in an area that's essentially a biological desert. Even though there are lawns there, it's a biological desert. And so they'll stop off at our place to get a drink of water, to take a rest, maybe to, to hunt, etc. And that has brought tremendous joy to our neighbors as well. So, Ian, because there is this ongoing tension, even though, and people want the cake and eat it too, mm -hmm. um, and people can see look what's happening with it, Bill's neighborhood, um, how do how does this advance? Or because it seems to be gaining some traction, despite some of this. But but but, is it really, or am I just imagining? No, it it absolutely is. And this concept of native species is part of all of this. And the idea of bringing a place back to its sort of fundamental sense of place that has to do with that. But there's a larger. Um, issue related to this that we've only kind of danced around, which is climate change. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we can have the best intentions of the world of planting wildflowers that we know once grew in a certain region. But um, as the world heats up and changes, some of these species won't take hold in the places they once did before. So it creates a conundrum when it comes to rewilding, mm -hmm. which is what is the real underlying purpose? Are we trying to make it the way it once was, or do we just want a harmony of plants and animals in a certain landscape, which also opens the question of naturalized species, right? So there are many things that we associate with the landscape of New England, for example, today, which didn't exist here before Europeans arrived, but are now endemic species that work in harmony. And how do those fit into this? So there's sort of qualifications that need to be considered when we define rewilding and the purposes of it. Well, is there not some adaptation to be done along those lines as well? So we've seen the impact of climate change. So now uh, instead of using XY native plant, it, it's, mm -hmm. it makes more sense to use um, one, two native plant. Is there any way to do that? Or is, does it mean that that area is just done for in terms of thinking about <laughs> returning it to you know what it might have been? Yeah. So if I could use another fish example, I think this illustrates this well. So there's a big concern about the population of Atlantic salmon, and there are uh, impulses to remove dams in New England to restore spawning grounds for Atlantic salmon to boost that population. The problem is the water is warming so much that those fish are shifting where their spawning grounds are and they're not returning to their historic runs. So removing the dams is actually not helping those populations rebound the way people expected them to. Hmm. And so we can have suppositions about 
what we can do to repair damage we've done, but there's other damages that are happening that's not simply fixed by planting certain types of plants or removing impediments to certain migratory patterns for animals. And so um, rewilding is not the sort of magic bullet, so to speak, for getting nature and people to be in the sort of harmonious balance that we're seeking. So what do you say, Bill, to someone listening to this who's attracted to the idea, heard about your lawn or what used to be your lawn and it's now something <laughs> yeah. else going on saying, well, I'd like to try that, even though Ian has told me I might not be able to find the exact uh, plants that might have been here because of, of climate change already having an impact in the area. What, what say you to those people who um, are thinking about it and how to approach it? Well, I think first, give it a try. Second, it doesn't matter whether you get an <laughs> exact match. So what Ian, Ian is is expressing, um, one, there is an element of, of rewilding that wants to restore so-called native species. And native species are, tech, the baseline for native species is the Columbian era, when Columbus first discovers North America, so 1492, around 1500. And anything that wasn't here at that time is regarded as non-native. Climate change and the loss of biodiversity, which is another uh, big issue, issue as important as climate change that we don't talk enough about, um, are really rejiggering the landscape. And we're really going to have to make adaptations to that. But there's also an, another perspective that really comes out of Europe. And this is uh, rewilding as nature-led conservation. And this is the idea that, as, as Ian says, in some spaces, we might want to be very active uh, in terms of reintroducing species, in terms of engaging in native uh, plantings or plantings of uh, flowers and, and, and trees that work well together, that, that, don't, that don't work across purposes. Um, but in other areas, as long as you have, as, if you can give wild nature its own capacity, its own time and space in which to adapt to climate change, it will do so. It's already doing so in many places across the world. The forest line in North America, up in Canada, is starting to move north into the tundra. It's a loss of the tundra. We're not going to be able to prevent that in our lifetimes. Um, and because there's that space in time and geography for those boreal forests to start to move northward to survive and the species that live within them to survive, um, that's an example of nature-led conservation. Mm. The last thing I want to say is this focus on what is native and what is not native is very much connected to debates over immigration. There's sort of a political nativism. Mm. Those mm. people don't belong here. Uh, those people do. There's biological nativism. Those animals don't belong here. These animals do. As an ethics think tank, we think it, this isn't a matter of just, well, these animals serve these certain functions. These, are an, these animals are individuals. They have social groups. They have families. We have responsibilities um, to them directly. Virtually everyone in the world understands that because there isn't a society in which companion animals do don't exist and in which children and many adults don't not only live with companion animals, but care about those companion animals as well. So hmm. thinking about 
uh, what's native and what's not native is not just a scientific issue of what was here back in the 1500s. It's an ethical issue about how we be in right relationship, how we do right by the animals that are here, um, by the nature that is around us today. Okay, last word from you, Ian Stevenson. I absolutely agree, and I was going to raise this very point about the idea of invasive species. Even that language itself um, talks about the idea that these plants and animals are coming here to take over, which is definitely playing into xenophobia. And it's no accident that a lot of the ones that are singled out are coming from places like Asia and not the Americas or Europe. And so I think Bill is absolutely right that we need to think about that. And if we're thinking about the concept of wildness, really we shouldn't be thinking about native and non-native because there's a sense of competition that happens in the wild and species that are coming here and introduced from other parts of the world might be out competing, but they're not apart from nature in that way. So um, I don't think rewilding should be seen as sort of a battle for just the native plants and animals. Well, you two have taught me that it's much more than a flower. (laughs) That's what I've learned. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for joining me. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you. Bill Lynn is a research scientist in the George Perkins Marsh Institute at Clark University and a research fellow at Knology. He is also the founder of PanWorks, an independent nonpartisan think tank dedicated to the well-being of animals. And C. Ian Stevenson is the director of advocacy for Greater Portland Landmarks, a nonprofit historic preservation organization in Portland, Maine. Ian holds a PhD in American and New England Studies from Boston University. Coming up, you probably know the joy of singing at the top of your lungs alone in your car. A one-person concert, if you will. Now imagine that as a group experience with many other singers in cars belting out the same song. So-called driveway choirs were born during the pandemic and were a lifeline for singers unable to perform in person. Now a new documentary, The Drive to Sing, chronicles how it happened. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. There is a Swedish proverb that says, those who wish to sing always find a song. That might also mean they always find a way to sing, even during a global pandemic. During the height of the pandemic, medical experts characterized group singing as a potential super spreader event. Choirs and choruses were regulated to a very unsatisfying Zoom experience. was until some determined musicians, including a local Massachusetts couple, figured out a way for individual singers to sing together while apart, each from the safety of their cars. 
these unusual melodic assemblies became so-called driveway choirs. Their story is captured in the new documentary, The Drive to Sing. The Drive to Sing was directed and produced by Bryce and Catherine Denny, who helped dozens of groups across the state and the country to form their own driveway choirs. Bryce Denny is the director of the film. He is a microchip verification engineer, as well as a singer and pianist. He has a degree in physics and piano performance from Oberlin College. Catherine Denny is the producer of the film. She sings in the Labyrinth Choir, a professional choir in Metro West Boston, has directed choirs and has taught elementary school music for many years. She has a Bachelor of Music degree in French horn from Oberlin Conservatory. They both join me in studio. Welcome to Under the Radar, Denny's. Hi. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm so glad to have you. Uh, the film is delightful, beautiful, so enjoyable. You can just sit back and really get into it. And the story is a wonderful one, too. We should say right off the top, you, for all of your other credentials, you two, are not filmmakers. <laughs> so uh, what uh, motivated you and at what point were you motivated to begin thinking about making what was happening? And we're going to get into that in a moment, uh, making a documentary about it. That's a great question. So throughout the project, we had been sharing video clips and um, noticing that news programs were popping up across the country with, oh, look at what this choir in Florida did. Look at what this choir in Washington did. And meanwhile, we could see this incredible movement spreading across the country. And it was too much to fit into a four-minute news clip, but we wanted to kind of compile the the videos that people were sharing on social media to kind of, because I, I think that the groups that um, learned about it and then made a parking lot choir of their own were all really ready to share with each other and make it happen and say, oh, look what we did. You can do it too, because we could all tell how important it was to be singing together when it wasn't safe to do it, you know, face to face and, and um, side by side. But even many of the groups who were doing it didn't realize how wide it went. Like mm -hmm. we, we keep discovering other other groups that we didn't even know about. And, uh, or we talk to someone and say, did you know people were singing in cars in Alaska? And they're what? That's amazing. It amazed us too. Mm. Well, let's go back uh, to the beginning. Uh, there was really grim motivation uh, for starting this. First of all, we should say there are 54 million choral groups in the US. Some of them, as your film makes clear, uh, make it a career, and for others, it's a beloved pastime. Uh, so that's a lot of people who were at the height at the beginning of the pandemic told, you can't sing together. And there were a couple of, uh, again, grim, um, pivotal events that took place. One, there was a choir that tried to squeeze in like one last uh, uh, gathering before the actual shutdown happened. And a lot of the members of those choirs died. Some were very ill. It, it made its point about uh, the dangers of being able to sing, sing together in the middle of, of what scientists had yet to understand. And then there was a webinar which brought together experts who uh, knew science and, and medicine and also choral experts to say, I'm sorry, this is for now. And at that point, they said, it's going to be two years before we think that anybody can gather to sing. So you are a part of that community hearing that news. How did it strike you at that moment, if you can go back to that time? Oh, it was devastating. It was um, for professionals not to know if they were ever going to be able to 
make a living that way again or if you know choral groups to even take a a temporary pause it's it's the social life of so many people and it's something that people really feel passionate about and it we were just sort of what are we gonna do yeah Catherine's very involved in theater groups um, community theater as a director and sometimes a singer sometimes a French horn player (laughs) and and of course all that was was paused slash canceled for unknown amount of time how can you do this how how can this work um, one of the things we tried early on was called virtual choirs, where everyone records themselves individually in their house, you know, listening to a click track or a, or something, um, and then someone can put it together with audio editing and video editing. Um, it can produce a great a great product that's that's fun to listen to and to watch, and it's motivating and stuff. But the process of making it is very very isolating. People sitting, you know in a closet or mm-hmm. in their bedroom or something, you know, try to find a place that's completely alone so you can make a great recording and record yourself all by, your, you know, all by yourself. But where many people in a choir, that's not really their comfort zone at all. So that was kind of a rough process. It's way better than nothing, um, but kind of an isolating process. We, we started thinking about the process of singing together and how it feels when you are surrounded by other singers who are breathing with you and putting word endings at exactly the same moment. And that was something that couldn't be done from our various, you know, virtual choirs or Zoom conversations or, you know, any of the available platforms. So that was our solution to sort of um, spread ourselves out in our little isolation booths and use a pretty primitive technology of, you know, microphones that have been around for lots of years and FM radios and sort of like mix it all together and make a choir sound. Well, before you get to the details of that, I want to go back just a little bit because first I want to acknowledge that for those of us watching those zoom videos it sounded like you guys were having a great time because we saw the edited version so we didn't know you know those of us who are not in our singers what it took to make that choral sound come together and that it was so isolating for you also it wasn't enjoyable um so early on um the voice and music theory teacher david newman came up with an idea about um allowing people to sort of sing apart in their cars he tested it out in his in his uh, neighborhood. And then, then he uh, put together, um, you know, a kind of process that, that uh, choirs could use. Uh, let's take a listen to what he had to say uh, about those, that early um, idea he had. You know, I just did a recording the summer before. We were, we were recording simultaneously, but we were all separated into different booths. And I thought that's that is isolating. We can do that. And what do we have at hand? We have cars. And at first, I just thought, well, I own a live sound system. Um, I have some wireless mics, so I in- just invited some people to come to my house and park across the street. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Bryce and Catherine Denny, producer and director, respectively, of the new documentary, The Drive to Sing, about the driveway choirs that sprung up during the pandemic. And you just heard from David Newman from the film, describing about how he came up with an idea of maybe putting the choral sound together. All right, so he did that, and then you took that, Bryce, without getting too wonky, and came up with a simple program, though at first I thought 50 pages, 
not so simple. But uh, from a technical aspect, it was simple for other people to be able to replicate. So you did a 50 page process based on the kind of thing that he'd done and then began to use it and to send it out to others. Tell us about it. Right. So, so we and David Newman kind of, we sort of independently started thinking about singing in cars and trying to trying that out. And then through social media, we met each other and, and immediately teamed up and, um, and shared all kinds of ideas. So David taught us all about wireless microphones and using the radio to send the signal back to people's cars. Um, and so that turned out to work way better than what we'd been trying, which was all wires, wires coming out of every car. And it was so complicated that it, it, we couldn't imagine going beyond about four or six or eight people. So we learned a lot from him. And so a lot of what I wrote down was, was sort of a guide for, so I'm not like a professional audio engineer. I, I didn't have much experience before, um, but I learned you know, through the internet and just having lots of time on my hands because my activities were canceled. Um, so learning from the internet and learning from David, that's kind of where that document came from. It was oriented toward making it relatively easy for someone who didn't have a lot of experience, kind of like me from my starting point. So we, you know, by, by making a recipe that was very specific, um, uh, you know, if you if you get these components and you plug them this way, you'll have a choir. <laughs> I, I tried to make it as accessible as I could so that people could easily copy it. So, Catherine, it was accessible to so many people, and they were so excited. I want you to go back. Um, you you really uh, portrayed this well in the film, "The Drive to Sing," your documentary. Um, how people were feeling, how you were feeling first about this is going to work. This is working. Tell us about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the first time we invited, I think, 18 people to our parking lot after he had sort of mastered the FM radios getting the signal, um, I was standing in the top of my driveway waving my hands, and I felt like it was a real chorus. Like, you know, I could do a gesture with my arms and everything would stop and then everybody would sing at the same tempo. It was really exciting. So I, I kind of, um, that video, I just sent far and wide to all of these choral directors. I'm like, look what we can do. And it. I think conductors loved it and singers loved it. And um, really, it, it was just as close as we could find to what we had been doing before. Mm. So um, the people who learned about this and who were in various choirs, and this, I, I, I want to emphasize, as you make clear in your film, this spread like wildfire. People were just running, <laughs> literally running to their parking lots uh, to grab a wireless <laughs> mic and, and be able to sing again. And they were so excited about it. I want to uh, play a clip from one of the people in the film. This is Pat Quinton. She was an alto in the Pro Musica Choir. And she describes what it felt like to be singing with people again. For the first time in so many months, I was singing with people in real time beautiful, meaningful music. It was, it blew my mind. I, and, and it really, I, I hadn't even realized how much I missed it. I mean, um, that was, it was just so heartfelt watching all the people's faces and light up when they recognized that they were making harmonies with their next door neighbor in the car. Um, so from the perspective of, of folks like you two, who essentially became leaders in this movement, um, what was it feeling like uh, as more and more people reached out to you? So that, that event that, that Pat was talking about, 
uh, was a Brahms Requiem in a parking lot in October 2020. So by that time, it had been about, what, six months or so since everything had shut down. That that event was amazing in a, in a number of ways. Um, first of all, the, the chorus had, since they hadn't seen each other, they hadn't sung that piece. They hadn't sung anything together except, you know, Zoom on mute. Um, and so they, first of all, it's the Brahms Requiem. It, it's a, it's about, you know, mourning and, um, and the, the losses that people had had during, during that time. And then the piece is amazingly beautiful. And then the chorus did so well, despite not having been able to practice together. And then it was recorded in this really strange way. And the sound, once you, you mix together all these microphones coming from separate places, the sound just, you can barely believe that it came from cars. You just, it's hard to, hard to even believe. Um, and as the, the tech guy, I got to mix the choir afterward. And it was just completely overwhelming how, how amazing that, that it sounded. The, partly, the, one of the, the feelings I was having was that event, that, that parking lot would have been completely empty and everyone would have been sitting at home wondering what to do. But because, you know, this community that had formed and learned how to do these things, and, you know, we taught people, we learned from people, um, something really beautiful happened that day that would have been otherwise, it would have been nothing. It was very meaningful for us, too. Yes, yes. I, I, uh, Catherine, I want to get your take on it. That's my guest, uh, Bryce Denny. Um, he and Catherine Denny, his wife, have produced and directed a film called The Drive to Sing about the car driveway choirs that sprung up uh, during the pandemic. Now, I want to say that I felt the film was like a big old concert. And I literally got chills when we got to the Brahms Requiem. So I want my listeners to hear a little bit of that because it's gorgeous. So this is the chorus, Pro Musica Choir, singing the Brahms Requiem. And the Today Show happened to be in attendance at the time. Beautiful, just gorgeous. I mean, I was just, oh my God, these people can really sing for one thing. And it yes. just carries you away watching that scene in the film, Catherine. It, it just felt, I think one thing that made it so special is that it felt impossible. In fact, that day, it literally was impossible because we forgot a, um, a power cord that powered the entire system. And there happened to be a guy from the Today Show who had it. <laughs> Uh, had an extra. <laughs> if, if it had not been the day that the Today Show wanted to film for us, we would not have been able to do that event. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. I mean, it's and, and it, I, the whole project kind of felt that way, that it, how could people do this? And why would they want to spend? I mean, typically, I've been a choral director for a long time. I go in with my music. I might set up chairs. I might distribute music. But, it, you know, here we, we would spend hours choosing a radio station and putting out cones to try to get people to park and figuring out who gets what microphone and all it was just so complicated and the fact that so many people around the country were willing to do this and were excited to do this was like yeah music matters and i want to make the point that there's all kinds of choirs so yes there's a beautiful brahms requiem with uh the pro musica choir but i also love 
Huntington harmonizers and hot rods and harmony coming together for a parking lot rehearsal of a barbershop song. Let's take a listen. The only explanation I can find and find is the love that I found ever since you've been around. Your love put me at the top of the world. Of the world. I love all that harmony. Um, I was just taken uh, overall with the entire film and the great experience, but I want to bring up to my listeners to make it clear to them, you two, when I say you were leaders in it, you were leaders in it. Um, you say, Bryce, that by June 2021, you were leading 59 events all over the place. Wow. <laughs> Talk so about how it sort of took over your life, really. <laughs> <laughs> it did. It, it's like a hobby totally out of control. That's one way to say it. Um, so, right, we, we started in our, our driveway and then our street, and we outgrew the street and moved to parking lots. But um, we got a lot out of it. it. It was very motivating to us to help people to do what they love. I got to sing more than ever, actually, that year, which is kind of ironic. I'm mostly a piano player, um, but, but here we were with two or three events each week where we would, we would meet some choir from somewhere. Often it was a different group each time. And, um, the, you know, they were super excited to find a way to sing together. And we would pack up our, our car full of <laughs> all kinds of microphones and speakers and radios and all, all this junk. It was jam-packed. And, <laughs> and, uh, and show up and unpack it all and, and, um, and help them to, to do the sound check and, and go for it. And so it, we could see how much it mattered to them. I mean, a lot of people said, you know, at just as they were starting to warm up, it just, you know, the, the first few minutes of rehearsal – it was so it was so emotional for people that they would sometimes just start to cry right there, you know, right in the middle of a warm up because um, it had been so long since they had done anything with their friends, you know, with, with their lifelong friends in many cases. Well, you know, I need for my listeners to know you were doing all that for free. So it sounds like a mission <laughs> to me, a kind of a heart mission of some sort. I, I suppose you feel the same way. I'm curious to know if there is a favorite event? You, there were so many experiences that you had while doing this. Is there a favorite? It, either one of you can say. <laughs> I, I think one of the most memorable was the Messiah Sing in December because, you know, usually you have about 30 choices in the month of December. To, you could go and just pick up a book and sing the Messiah inside a church or something. But Nothing was happening in 2020, so we just decided, okay, we'll take a big parking lot and we'll just invite everybody, and we we can only have two, 32 mics, but anybody else can come. We had 160 co people come in like 100 cars, and they were, you know, most of them didn't have microphones, but... You know, there was a guy, uh, Michael Fitzer was on the top of a marching band podium that somebody had lent us, and he was waving his arms, and he was probably about an inch tall to the people <laughs> in the back. But, you know, it was so much fun. Hmm. So did you have a sense, either of you now, or do you have a sense now that you've edited it and pulled it all together, that um, you've really captured an historic, a special moment in time? You know, there will be many, many ways of looking at the period of the pandemic and the various experiences. Yours is a unique one, um, and uh, but it's right up there, and that's your work. Yeah, we, we definitely, we, one of the audiences that we had in mind were like kids who are growing up right now who barely are going to remember the pandemic, um, that we wanted, you know, at the beginning, we explained them some things that 
are very, very obvious, painfully obvious to people right now because they just lived through it. Um, but but this this is sort of a, a way to remember this strange period in our lives, um, which was tragic in so in many many ways. But this project and this film is sort of an uplifting story within that context of of terrible things happening and loss and loneliness. And also, I think that ha- the the dichotomy of it's the most isolating time in history, and yet we were building this community across the country and in our own home states. And that's, you know, that's kind of cool. Um, now, I presume everybody's back in person. I don't know. You tell me. And I recall that uh, David Newman at some point in your, that's the uh, voice and music theory teacher said, this is great. I'm glad that we figured it out. But really, I want to get back to, you know, singing in person. Um, so are choirs and choral groups back in person now? What's what's the story? Uh, many of them are. Um, I, you know, and but all of us are kind of still living in this pandemic world where we have to be prepared to pivot. I feel like all throughout the project, we were learning about COVID and what needs to be done. What to be but, even be afraid of. Right. And now we know, you know, you don't have to disinfect all of the microphones. Nobody's going to catch it by touching a surface. But, you know, now that we know that it's air transmitted, we know that we can block off our uh, our air you know our when we're singing we can wear a mask and then we won't share aerosols and so we can still get together and it, but it, it's been a real learning experience so and our, i don't our, think that we're done oh i was gonna say our driveway choir's done that was my question yes we we don't know of anyone doing parking mm-hmm. lot singing anymore mm-hmm. um they've they've moved inside with masks and various varying amounts of distance well what a beautiful film how interesting um how historic Good for you two for um, capturing it all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bryce Vinny is the producer of the new documentary, The Drive to Sing. Catherine Vinny is the director of the new documentary, The Drive to Sing. Both are shepherding the documentary to screenings at festivals around the country. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger and engineered by Dave Goodman, Bill Piacitelli, and Sai Patel. Our intern is Catherine Hurley. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly, and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Yeah.